If you like LEGO, you can probably appreciate the educational value of Minecraft. It's basically a digital version of the colourful interlocking plastic blocks. You can follow a plan or make it up as you go. You can build pretty much anything you like so long as you can imagine it and you have the patience to see it through. And that freedom, that versatility to create and play on your own terms is liberating and empowering. Richard Moss here. This week on Ludophilia, we have two stories about learning by playing systems-driven games. One is about the educational value of Minecraft, and the other is about a guy who studies something he calls play design, and who developed two of my favourite bits of playful software. Ludophilia is a new show about play in all its forms. The way it intertwines with our lives, the people who dedicate their spare time or commit to a career in designing playful objects and experiences. How we play, why we play, the science of play, and the stories of people for whom play has really made a difference to some small or large part of their life. This is the first episode of Ludophilia, and I'm sure there'll be some teething problems as I get going. So please bear with me and enjoy the show. If you've spent any time around kids or people with kids in the past few years, you've probably noticed the kids really like Minecraft. They're excited about it. They love its crafting systems, which involve digging through its blocky world for raw materials like dirt and stone and wood, and then combining them in ever more elaborate ways to make cool stuff. They love surviving its creatures of the night, the iconic creepers and zombies and a host of other spiteful beasts. And they love swapping and sharing stories about the game and the worlds they've explored, or the cool things they've made. Teachers the world over are trying to tap into that passion, to translate Minecraft play into broad lessons that kids can carry forward into their future schooling and life. A company called Teacher Gaming tries to make that easier. Teacher Gaming produces Minecraft EDU. A special version of Minecraft for the educational sector that tacks on some extra features to help teachers use the game more effectively in the classroom. For, for me, like as, as a teacher, uh, the, the biggest, biggest reward that I can get from my work is when I, when I see that my kids are excited and really enjoying what they are doing. That's Santeri Koivisto. So in, fin in Finland, like with the names and most of the other words, the weight is on this first syllabus like Sanderi Koivist. Yeah, so that's just like a reading <laughs> instruction how, how fin Finnish works. He's the CEO and co-founder of Teacher Gaming. He tells me he was studying his master's in teaching, which is required in order to become a teacher in Finland. This is 2010. He was playing a lot of Minecraft at the time and working as a substitute teacher. This one school he was subbing at in January 2011 had some kind of program related to humans and technology. They let him try something with Minecraft, and it went down pretty well. Teachers also came behind, like looking from behind the class and said, okay, what is this? That Can, can, can you leave something uh, for us to play with too? We would like to try this. And that was sort of a signal to me that, okay, there has to be something in this game because the kids get it, no question, but if the teachers get it, that's big. Fast forward to June, and Koivisto had Minecraft developer Mojang on board with a Minecraft in Schools initiative. And he had a business partner across the Atlantic, a guy called Joel Levin, who'd been making waves online as the Minecraft teacher. He got like 
12,000 Tumblr followers or something. It was like a massive hype all around the, the education space in the internet. Around the beginning of 2012, they started to get more schools joining and it just kind of grew from there. The schools that bought the game, they went to other conferences, they were hyping or like creating the buzz around Minecraft Education and Minecraft EDU that, hey, there is a thing that helps teachers to use this powerful game in classroom. And ever since, more and more and more schools have been joining. And now we are sitting at 7,500 schools or something, like a massive amount of schools in 40 different countries. That's what drives Santeri and his team to keep going. From the very beginning, that has been the, also the driving power for us because we, we weren't always profitable. We have been taking like 500 euros a month salary from the company just trying to keep us alive. And it has been sort of the movement and the, and the transformation in, in many classrooms that we have seen. And now when things are getting really big, it's, I mean, the, taking a game like this to use in a classroom, in your classroom, it's a very transformative experience. We have seen examples from all different categories, all different subjects. You can see some of the things teachers and their students have come up with at minecraftedu.com worlds. There's a world there that has a scale model of the Parthenon and other ancient Greek buildings, which is meant to help students learn about multiplication and volume calculations, as well as the golden age of Athens. Another drops the kids into a pre-built town in between two volcanoes. They're about to erupt and they need to work together to find ways to limit the devastation, while the teacher secretly starts to trigger more and more lava flows and fires, which sounds like a lot of fun to me. There's also a clever recreation of the circumstances of the classic book Swiss Family Robinson so that you can explore the island yourself and see if you can do a better job at building a new life than the characters in the book. And Joel Levin, who you may recall from a moment ago, is another founding member of Teacher Gaming, recently developed a big canyon world where players meet mechanical turtles that they need to program in order to discover all of the secrets of the canyon. You'll probably have noticed in my descriptions here that there's not a lot of stereotypical school stuff, like memorizing facts and figures and formulas. That's not really the idea or the focus. Some of the biggest things that Minecraft can actually teach are not necessarily in the subject content itself. It's more about like the digital citizenship and how to behave online and, and just tapping a lot of the experience and the excitement that kids have towards this game and towards games in general be involved in the, in the classroom. You can use Minecraft to hone your critical thinking and problem solving skills and to get your head around more abstract concepts too. When somebody burns down your house in Minecraft, your digital property becomes very real and the emotions and, the, and all those feelings that you have towards your creation are there when you have the conversation with your students that is it right to burn somebody else's house down in, in the virtual world, where in the physical world you would never do that. One of my sort of personal missions here is to shift the power balance in schools, meaning that I don't want, personally, I don't want that the teacher is that sovereign who, who is like the best in everything, who, who says what is right and what is wrong in, in, in the classroom and, and during, the, during the lesson. I, I think that it's very healthy for the kids to be experts in one thing. 
If Minecraft is a language, your typical 12-year-old speaks it fluently, but your typical teacher fumbles through conversations repeatedly checking their phrasebook. The kids can be the platform experts in Minecraft. They know what you can do in Minecraft, they know how you can do it, whatever tools there are, they have the creativity and the ideas how to do things inside that game, inside that platform. But they are not experts at facilitating their work, facilitating their group, solving problems, solving problems together, and stuff like that, where the teacher is once more the expert, and also once more the expert in the subject content. It's not just about getting the teachers on board either. They also need the parents to understand that Minecraft can be a gateway to passionate self-learning, which is really how I operated in school. Although back then I was playing things like Civilization, SimCity 2000, SimTower, and Age of Empires. These were the things that got the learning juices flowing for me. When many times when I have the chance to talk to people in like in, in an event, I like the first thing I try tapping into is like the is the like the parenting problem that today's parents are having that their kids are playing too much games or they are not quite sure are they playing, but the news reporter says that this is how much your kids should be playing, and then they are like dealing with this enthusiasm towards this one game. I can give an example of my own about kids' enthusiasm for Minecraft making a difference. A couple of years ago, I interviewed Hamish Curry, who was then the education manager at the State Library of Victoria. He's not anymore. He left at the end of 2013 to explore other challenges. He described this occasion where some teenagers came in for a one-off program with Minecraft. They asked the kids to build the library's dome reading room in the game, which is no easy feat because the dome is this huge octagonal space that was apparently designed to hold over a million books and it's got this massive super high ceiling 35 meters across and once upon a time it was the largest dome of its type in the world. And it was a big deal for the kids, their parents and the policymakers at the library who had been doubting that video games were relevant. Here's a clip from that interview, edited for length. We succeeded pretty well in the end, and the response from like online and other networks was massive. And it was only at that point that other people who had kind of not gotten it started to pay attention because they saw all this high levels of engagement, this great story. And, you know, I talked about Minecraft and yet trying to say, you know, Lego, it's like that. But then it wasn't until they saw something that they'd seen in the real, so they knew the dome reading room here. And once they saw it rebuilt in Minecraft, you just saw the ball drop. I get it now. I get it. And they built it at like four bricks to one meter. Well, then from feet into inches and everything. It was just a, this behemoth project. But they did such an incredible job with it, and it just kept getting. Um, so it's really, it was you know one of those things and. I thought, oh yeah, they're doing really well with it. And then the response is back and I got comments like within a day, I must have had about like a hundred tweets from people all over the place. Oh, that looks amazing. And oh, where did you do that? How did you do it? When can we see it? And uh, <laughs> it's like, really? Oh, wow. And so it's kind of, it has snowballed in the sense that people now go, oh, we want to, the kids want to keep working on it. People want to come and see it. You know, it's not until you do something that really engages people and people, you can show them it and go, this is what I was trying to tell you of what we could do with it. And then they go, okay, right, now we get it.
I, I hate the idea of trying to turn some sort of marketing opportunity simply just let's just try and keep helping the kids champion it because they're the ones that are most articulate about it. The, that, that parental thing was just so awesome. It's like, you know, one of the boys, when, they, when he left, he like grabs his dad when he comes and picks him up and he drags his dad over and we have this, we have this big printed things of the dome out in the foyer and he's talking, he's like, oh, and up here we built this and, and his dad sort of came back and he's like, I don't know what you've done, but he's like, he never talks like this. He, has, he must have had such a good time. I said, oh, like, he was great. Like, he, you know, he really was into it and he was studying it hard and he had challenges and he got around. And for me, it was like, that's what, you know, when you give, when you kind of connect with kids and you help motivate them and work around their passions, they'll fly. And, but his dad was just so grateful that his son was excited. You know, it's, it's, it's slightly sad, sad yeah. but also you're really happy that that's happened. So it's just, okay, we need to feed this more. And then there's that thing of, okay, well, God, you know, that was just thir- that was 13 kids in a, in, a, in a lab for a weekend. That story was two years ago. Minecraft had already been around for years, but it was only just beginning to seep into the public consciousness. Nowadays, it's kind of more accepted that, okay, Minecraft is a big deal. Kids love it, and a lot of teachers are trying to tap into that. But Koli Visto and his colleagues at Teacher Gaming still run into other problems. Teachers are used to textbooks and documentary videos. If they're not game literate, they don't necessarily get the value of Minecraft. We don't, we don't really want teachers to create a lot, a lot like a pre-made structures, pre-made content, because we don't want to change Minecraft into a school book where you just consume a piece of material, piece, like, a, like a chapter. We want it to be more like an open dialogue that evolves into something that is also built and visible in Minecraft. Minecraft should be used to promote organic learning and facilitate discussion, in other words, and to make the classroom a more fun place to be. For me, there is nothing wrong kids actually enjoying the school. <laughs> Although in some places there's a weird discussion that school is not supposed to be always fun. I mean, naturally it's not always fun, but I mean, the majority of the time it would be, for me, it would be beneficial if kids would be enjoying time that they spend in school. It's, it's just, it's like that one synapse that you use to connect different topics and something that students are very passionate about. And you sort of, by doing that, accept that, okay, they, they possess, they do something during their free time that is very valuable. Amazing as Minecraft is, it's certainly not the only cool game that kids like, which has educational value. Teacher Gaming also does the Minecraft EDU treatment on the adorable space travel rocketry spaceship dropping out of the sky simulator Kerbal Space Program. Like its cousin, Kerbal EDU stays true to the underlying game and adds only the tools that are needed to help teachers turn their students' open-ended play and actual lessons. Where Minecraft is more, you, you need to implement some creativity in order to, uh, you know, the, what would be the English word? Like, it's not like a very realistic expression or realistic, like creation and the mechanics in the game are not 
like Kerbal. It's it's more about you represent something in Minecraft where Kerbal you can actually do tests that represent uh, like physics very very uh, accurately. For example, with aerodynamics or like Newton's laws or, or things like that. What goes up must come down, and in Kerbal, your spaceship comes down an awful lot. It's something that okay, why why stuff falls? Why this goes? How it goes for for a younger student, let's say ten year old or thirteen year old? It is a sufficient, much more than a sufficient representation of of how stuff in the real world works. Koi Visto says that going forward, teacher gaming is going to continue down the same path it's been treading, with Minecraft EDU and Kerbal EDU, and gradually they'll bring in more games too. The main thing is just to empower kids to have a greater role in their own education, to get teachers and students collaborating on lessons, to improvise, instead of having everything kind of written in stone and directed one way from teacher and textbook down to student, which is how I think most of us were taught in school, and it's increasingly irrelevant to the way kids learn. I think with all new things, with technology and, and, and education in general, it feels like, especially in the, in the northern parts of Europe, and, and somewhat in, in, uh, in also in the English-speaking world, people tend to make, I mean, they're not very flexible in how they are creating their curriculum. And at, this, at the very beginning, when the school year starts, it's sort of all fixed. With the current, today's era, stuff gets old very fast. Information gets old very fast. So I just hope that teachers and, and all professionals in education would have a sort of more open mindset to try things. I mean, now there are so many people trying Minecraft that I don't need to encourage people to do that anymore. It seems like people are doing that without me trying to uh, push it. But in general, in, in, in any case, I think the most powerful learning experiences can be found outside the books. Kaim Gingold was halfway through his master's degree in digital media design at Georgia Tech in 2002, when an opportunity he couldn't believe dropped into his inbox. Uh, we had a it was a two-year program. We had a required internship, and between the two years to get professional experience. And I hadn't, you know, I think when I was younger, I wanted to go into games, but I kind of, you know, when I was young, when I was, you know, like a kid, I think that by the time I was in college and graduate school, that idea didn't appeal to me because most games really aren't that interesting to me then and probably still now. Um, I tend to be pretty selective in terms of what I will you know, willing to spend my time playing. And I thought, you know, most of it just seemed like junk. And so I wasn't really interested in working at a game company. And then one day I got this email from my advisor, Janet Murray, and said, you know, there's a, she, she happened to get an email from Max's recruiter afforded to her. Let's stop there for a moment. Maxis, in case you don't know, is the company that made the SimCity games, and also SimAnt, SimEarth, SimLife, Spore, and perhaps most famously, The Sims. Will Wright was the company's co-founder and top game designer until he left in 2009. And she said, are you interested in working with Will Wright? I said, well, yeah, of course. And so she wrote this, I remember sitting in the lab, and you know, I replied yes, and then something like 30 minutes later, I had a response back from... Uh, this Maxis recruiter 
you know, was kind of like, okay, let's just set it up, you know. And uh, and I guess in that time, Janet had written this just glowing, you know, you know, one paragraph, you know, recommendation, and that was enough to, you know, to get the job done. And um, and then I and then, and then once I had it, and she will never let never let me forget this. Once I had it, I was really reluctant to go because I wasn't sure what it, it just seemed too good to be true. And I thought, well, I'll just be like set. I'll just be put as part of some large team, and I won't have any contact with Will, and I'll be made to work on something really lame. And uh, so she still hung out. I had to twist my arm to get me to go, and I, I'm really glad that I went because it really was the best case possible. You know, internship like I had a, a little not a, not quite a desk, but a table set right outside of Will's office in the hallway and right next to his elder shrine. And, uh, you know, I had a lot of contact with him in part because they were working on The Sims online at the time and that's what everyone was in a frenzy on. And I was basically, I was really the only guy working on what what became Spore. Kaim was assigned to work on what later became Spore. At the time it was called Sim Everything. Uh, it was like an existential project at that point. So it wasn't clear who you were or what you were supposed to do or anything like that. It was just kind of the vastness of the universe, and um, which was very exciting because we could just about simulate anything and it would be relevant. Over the course of the summer, he basically lived out my dream. Kinghold spent his days theorizing with Will Wright and building prototype simulations in which you could play with creatures, cities, cells, and other stuff. When the summer ended, he went back to Georgia Tech and finished his masters. Then Maxus hired him full time. His job was to make the Creature Creator, which was the editing tool that Spore players used to design their creature at various stages of its evolution, from primordial goo to a whole planet-hopping intelligent super civilization. We knew that it was usability-wise; it was our most challenging. Editor. We called them editors at the time, we were not creators. It was the most challenging editor. It would be the most challenging editor for the player because it was so three-dimensional and so intricate. And also we knew that it was the only editor that... We also knew that it was early on they would encounter. So it wasn't like we saved the most complex one for last and you would graduate or two. We knew that it would come right at the beginning of the game and it wasn't optional. Like I think later you can opt out of some of, some of the editing, but here it was like required. And it was early and it was really hard. So we knew that we had, it was a really difficult design challenge. One of the things we had to balance was the ability of expert users to make really intricate things, you know, like the power users, like the animators we had on our team with the beginners who would be coming through and need to learn it. So the tool is very much designed in this kind of um, like hypercard like sense where it kind of sort of playfully discloses more and more behaviors and abilities as you play with it. So one of my mantras was, you know, we shouldn't put any powerful feature in there that will trip up a beginner. You know, there's all those powerful features should be hidden, like a modifier, keys, or you know, they should have to dig for that. So things are designed to sort of be discoverable. So like the camera rotation, for example, you know, if you click in the background and you start, you know, and something happens and the camera moves, right? Like it's just, you just kind of discover those things. just attaching a part to the creature should be, you know, moving it on and off should be, that in itself should be a pleasurable act. So everything in it should be pleasurable. Kind of like when you play with Legos or any kind of well-designed toy, there's a kind of just basic satisfaction, just snapping and then snapping things, moving them around. Gingold left EA around the time Braid and World of Goo were sparking an indie revolution in game development. He started playing around with a game idea that was way too big 
had to do with castles and authoring tools, and there was multi-user component, and a people simulation thing, and there was a geology simulation component. He showed it to a group of other designers in the Bay Area. One guy said to me very helpfully, said, Chaim, I love what you're doing here, but I want you to, you really need to scope this because I want you to finish it while you're still young. (laughs) He decided to focus on the geology simulation bit. First, he tried to make a puzzle game, but it wasn't working out. Puzzle game has to have these discrete solutions and outcomes. And this simulation I had was really soft and squishy. Then he saw a work in progress version of the interactive app version of Al Gore's book, Our Choice, which had images and videos you could pick up and pop open. My favorite feature was that you could shrink down videos to the size of a postage stamp while you checked out the table of contents or some other chapter text. And it'd keep playing the whole time. And of course, being an Al Gore thing, it was also full of interactive maps and infographics about climate science. And I saw those things and I thought, aha, maybe what I'm making is not a puzzle game. Maybe I'm making is a book. Maybe I realized that a puzzle is just one particular kind of guided play structure. A puzzle gives you, a puzzle game gives you a kind of, it's like a framework for playing, right? You can play with blocks. But if I tell you, here's a thing you want to, here's an objective to solve and here's some pieces, here's some constraints and a goal then all of a sudden I've given you a kind of guided, more rigidly guided play structure. And if I give you many of them in sequence, then I'm giving you a longer arc of authored play experience. And that's, we call those things games. But a book is another kind of guided, guided experience. And I thought, well, if we have these interactives in it, then that's another way of creating this guided play. So I really focused in on, I was like, the thing that I want is guided play. I don't necessarily want a puzzle game. So once I had this guided play idea and this book idea and thinking it can entertain and inform, uh, then I kind of, that's when things sort of started really fitting together. And the cool thing about this book structure is that it lets you just embed all these different disconnected simulations together. And they can still be part of a coherent experience, yet they can be separate from each other. So, and that's that guided play structure of the book gives you the overarching framework to put those things together. It took a few years to refine the vision and work through multiple prototypes, but the end result was Earth Primer, a science book for playful people. It's like an interactive version of an 8th or ninth grade geology textbook. Pages contain little chunks of explanatory text next to a little slice of Earth simulated with a bunch of tools. You can do things like change wind direction or sea level, remove or introduce mountain ranges, or trigger rain or lava flows or whatever and the micro world reacts realistically. The whole thing is gated, so you don't have access to a tool until you've learned how that aspect of the geological or climate cycle works. You see, you read, then you do. And the previous concepts get reintroduced over time, so you can see how they all fit together. This is that guided play structures thing. You have free reign to play with a model however you like but your toolset varies depending on what part of this tour of planet Earth you're up to, and your play is directed by some simple question or idea. Gingold hopes that you'll come away from the experience with a basic foundational understanding of Earth science. One interesting thing is that about the project to me, the sort of the irony of it is that I, of course, learned much more about Earth science than anyone will playing Earth Primer. Because <laughs> I just had to really get, understand it at a pretty deep level in order to build a bottle of it. Like much of like, you know, it was really, it was like my, like my play, my game, my play experience was making Earth Primer and learning and trying to see if I could build a, a model that 
that captured what I was learning. He also told me that he was surprised that sometimes it's impossible to just build one model to capture how scientists think something works, because sometimes they don't know, or they can't agree, and no one explanation could be described as a consensus view. He'd love to see someone make a kind of Earth Primer 2 that goes deeper, sharing some of these competing models and letting you, the player, decide for yourself, which seems most likely to be correct. All it really comes down to, though, is that he wants ordinary people, kids and adults who don't have science degrees, to be inspired to learn. When a geologist, for example, sees mountains, they see something that's way more interesting than you or I can see, but a good teacher can help their students see that way, see kind of the innate beauty of American history or geology, whatever it is. And that's what I was hoping to do with Earth Primaries, sort of capture and translate some of that magic so that you don't have to be a geologist, you can be just a kid or a mom or whomever and, and get a taste of it. Kime's currently in the closing stages of a PhD at UC Santa Cruz on design, play, and computation. The, my overarching thesis or thing that I'm interested in is this idea of play design. And that's a phrase that I first used at GDC a handful of years ago in a talk on the human play machine, which was a sort of kind of out there design philosophy talk. And the reviews of it were very mixed, like ranged from very positive to, you know, like, why is this guy talking about all this rambling on about this stuff? And what I took as a good sign, because it meant that people kind of were passionate about what I was saying. So, and the, and the idea behind play design is to is to think just as game design and game studies thinks as, thinks about games as this category of things that can be a sport or a board game or a computer game and sees these all these different elements as part of part of a set with shared characteristics. My question is, what if we think about play design as something analogous? So where something like SimCity sort of falls off the edge of the chart of games because it's not quite a game. What if we recalibrate a chart that's made of playthings and we look at toys and playgrounds and software toys as part of a set? What would those shared characteristics and design considerations be that make that set work? At the moment, Kime's working on the fifth chapter of his dissertation, a close analysis of the original SimCity source code. There's also cell automata and system dynamics, which kind of ties back to his work on Spore over a decade ago. And this thing called city building education, or design-based learning, which deals with a lot of the same things as SimCity from a totally different angle. And then one of the interesting things to me is that she wrote uh, some of the teacher's guides to SimCity and SimLife. And so there was this collaboration between Doreen and Maxis, and it's kind of a beautiful counterpoint to SimCity because SimCity is this digital-based creative play, and city building education or DBL is totally analog, completely social, all the enactment of rules is completely impro- is more improvisational, it's flexible. You can sort of look under the hood of the simulation. It's more about social negotiation and it's sort of a more profound kind of creativity that the participants engage in. And they're both about cities and the cities are the sort of, the cities is very evocative anchor for both kinds of experiences. So they're like really similar, but really different.
that was Udophilia episode one, Playful Pedagogical Primers. Thank you to both my guests, Santeri Koivisto and Kaim Gingol. Best of luck to Kaim in completing his PhD, as well as to Santeri and his crew at Teacher Gaming as they continue to transform the world of education. You can learn more about Teacher Gaming and its mission at teachergaming.com and about Earth Primer at earthprimer.com. And seriously, if you have an iPad, go grab the app right away. It's the best way to learn basic earth science. I'll have the links to all of that in the show notes. Music this week comes from some old improvisational recordings I found on my Casio keyboard, except for that bit from the SimCity 2000 soundtrack and a few Apple loops. Ludophilia is produced entirely by me. I am aiming to make this a monthly show to begin with, but I'll ramp up production if there's enough money to justify taking the time out of my freelance schedule to do fortnightly episodes, or to throw in short pieces of less than eight minutes in between the main releases. You can support the show by clicking on the donate button on the website woodaffiliate.net, by contributing to my Patreon at patreon.com slash Don't forget to leave a review on iTunes as well and share it with everyone you know. It's a new show, so I'm going to need all the help I can get to get the word out. If you have feedback, ideas, questions, suggestions, offers of money or sponsorship or absolutely anything you'd like to say, tweet me at mossassi or the show at Ludophilia. Or you can send an email to richard at ludophilia.net. Until next time, I'll leave you with this little clip I couldn't find a place for. See ya. As with very much the idea of a kind of game map, like the sort of Super Mario 3 sort of world map, that was really the idea for those chapter pages, was to combine the Mario 3 world map with the science diagrams, like the, like the water cycle diagrams. It was like, here's different places you go to. And just like in Mario world, they kind of unfold as you go, right? So it's simultaneously a, 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 a map, like a progression map with different places in it. And it's a diagram. So when you finish, you've sort of unearthed this entire systems diagram. Now you can say, ah, that's what I learned. I learned about the water cycle. There's my diagram, right? That's the, there's the map of what I've now learned.